My name is Peter King, and you're listening to me on Above and Beyond. Hi all, it's Mike Myers with another episode of Above and Beyond, brought to you by the Reengineering Australia Foundation, where we strive to engage, inspire and educate students, teachers and, and industry about the career pathway options that exist in the field of science, technology, engineering and mathematics. Our goal is to create the next generation of innovators who will build Australia's economic future. But to achieve this goal, it's essential to have students engage with industry as much as possible before leaving school, both as a method of building their career knowledge and to simplify the transition to the world of work, a transition which should be driven by the passions and skills of the students rather than being a somewhat random and last-minute decision process. Today, we're going to talk about a career pathway that should stir the passion in us all. It's been said that we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about our oceans, and this could be because it's more dangerous to travel and explore the deep oceans than it is to travel to the moon. We're about to deep dive into the world of underwater exploration in a discussion with Peter King, who's the manager of the Autonomous Marine Systems Division at the Australian Maritime College in Launceston, Tasmania, commonly known as AMC. Peter's a computer engineer who's been working with AUVs, that's Autonomous Underwater Vehicles, for the past 12 years. And most notably, is the project program lead for the AUV activities associated with the Antarctic Gateway Partnership Program. I would have to say that I'm way out of my depth and probably way out of the way I'm using puns, but I look forward to the conversation. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I think probably the best place to start would be uh, maybe if you can give us a description of the Australian Maritime College and its link to the University of Tasmania. The Australian Maritime College is a uh, special institute with uh, the University of Tasmania. So it's got a couple of kind of mandates. Within the university, it offers engineering programs in naval architecture and maritime engineering. With that, it has some of the world-class facilities for vessel design, testing, simulation, model usage. In addition to the engineering programs at the Maritime College, they also offer seafarer training. So people who wish to become sea captains or, or, or ship crew can come and do uh, training. They also offer specialist training as well. So one thing of note is we uh, we offer autonomous underwater vehicle training for the Royal Australian Navy. So there's a number of aspects of short courses, commercial courses, as well as uh, research and higher education. So do you do lecturing as well or you just look after the one division? Lecturing isn't my primary role, but we do participate in lecturing. So we offer some specialist lectures uh, anytime they want to delve into underwater vehicles or robotics or uh, autonomous vehicles. Your bio mentions that uh, the Antarctic Gateway Partnership Program, what's that all about? That was a, a special research initiative of the Australian Research Council. It just officially ended this year, but it was a multi-year, many million dollar project to, to build the research capability in Tasmania for polar and Antarctic science in the Southern Ocean, Antarctica, the oceans, the land and, and beneath the ice. Our 
aspect of that was we were a, a, one of the research themes was to bring in advanced technology to support Antarctic science. And for us, that was to acquire and, and start to develop and use a, a large polar EUV. So that's how we got our large autonomous underwater vehicles through the uh, Antarctic Gateway Partnership Program. And that also supported us to do some deployments in Antarctica uh, beneath the ice. I have to ask, what's it like in Antarctica? Uh, it's it's a pretty amazing place, as you'll probably hear anybody say. It's unlike anywhere else uh, on the earth. Incredibly remote, incredibly beautiful. Yeah, it's a bit hard to describe, but I mean, yeah, it's otherworldly. But you just you get a, such a sense of kind of vastness and remoteness uh, when you're there, especially when you see the effort it takes to actually get there, and then you kind of realize uh, you're, you're a long way from home while you're there. So if something goes wrong, you're in deep trouble. Yes, indeed. So when you're exploring the um, undersea ice and things, what are there specific t- targets or projects that you're researching information for or do you have a number of those or is there one at a time that you do it really varies we're a, we're a technology deliverer so we're kind of a service provider for for data that the vehicle can collect so it really depends on which which partners we're working with in the science community through the gateway and what we've done to date has primarily been collecting information to drive some of their models about how the ocean is circulating beneath the ice and how how the warm water is getting in and how the meltwater is getting out and how thick the ice is so they can get a be- much better view of how the ice is changing and melting. That's been our focus has really been the shape of the seafloor, the thickness of the ice, the temperatures of the water and how it's moving. Future uses could be much more vast. For us, it's really been driving the ice melt models of how the ocean and the ice interact together. So you're doing this for Australian science or, or science anywhere in the world? Primarily Australian science, but we're also with international collaboration. So Australia doesn't operate in a, bu- in a bubble. Uh, it deals quite uh, often with international groups that are all concerned with uh, Antarctic science. Our first year down south was pretty much strictly an Australian deployment. Our second trip down was with Korean on a Korean ship with, with partners there, which are part of a, a large international effort to, uh, to gather information in West Antarctica. So we go down as an Australian group, but generally there's uh, international collaboration. On an Australian boat or do you go down on other boats? I know you talked about a your Korean boat there, but do you get, do, does Australia have facilities to go to the Antarctic all the time? Oh, yes, indeed. So our, uh, our, we went down in 2018, 2019, we went down on, on the Aurora Australis, which was uh, Australia's icebreaker, which has just recently been retired and due to be replaced. Uh, and we operated out of one of the Australian uh, research stations, uh, which it had, maintains three on the continent year round. So yeah, I mean, Australia has a fantastic program for, for getting back and forth to Antarctica throughout the year. But last year, yeah, it was, it was a different opportunity going down uh, on a Korean vessel instead. So Australia controls a, f- a fair portion of it. The Antarctic. Does that mean that the sci- the level of scientific work that is our responsibility is also large? Oh yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, Australia has concern over the area that that falls under its jurisdiction for sure in East Antarctica. But it's it's also not limited by by those borders. It really uh, it really contributes to the global community of Antarctic science. Uh, that you know the, the the entire continent has an effect on the world. So the the uh, the focus is uh, is continent wide. I'd written down in my notes that you'd bought online an, an Explorer AUV, and then I realised uh, when I was talking to my daughter that I should clarify that you didn't buy it on the internet, you you made it work. <laughs> <laughs> Just some notes I've got for myself here, but how big is this Explorer AUV? At the moment, our vehicle is just under eight meters long and weighs about 2,200 kilograms. So quite a large vehicle. When you're driving um, an AUV and we've got um, kids building ROVs, which are tethered, and I gather you've sent this on a very large journey, 160 kilometers away, how do you control something over that distance? 
Well, that's the, I mean, what makes this tool so kind of useful and unique is that it isn't controlled. So when we say an autonomous underwater vehicle, we truly mean autonomous. So if we take, for example, that long mission where we were, you know, a 60 kilometer round trip where the vehicle would have been at the furthest 30 kilometers away from us, we have no communications, we have no control. So the vehicle is completely self-driving. Uh, it has a set of mission tasks that it will attempt to complete and has logic on board to, to kind of deal with things as, as they happen like obstacles or if there's any issues or faults and monitoring its various systems and, and voltages. But for a mission like that, for about 90% of the time it was in the water, it was out of communication and under its own control. So the batteries and things must be quite large on the, I mean, to be, to take it that far and come back. I mean, what happens if they start to go down? Are there fail-safe systems and things in place to bring it back? Yeah. So the vehicle is, is monitoring its energy reserves. Um, so we have logic programming in there of what to do once we've reached certain levels of, of battery. So uh, the hope would be is that if, if we did have a failure in the batteries and we were losing capacity, the vehicle would make the decision to return to the ship uh, as quickly as possible. In an AUV project like this, you send it on for 60 kilometers. What is it collecting data? Is it measuring things? What, what kinds of sensors exist on this AUV? Our vehicle, as it went down uh, the last two years, we have a, a full suite of sonar sensors. So that allows us to make maps of the seafloor to get the shape and the, the shape of the seafloor, the depths, as well as a little bit of information about the consistency of the sediments of if it's rocky, if it's sandy, if it's muddy. We're also measuring how the water flows. So we we're able to measure currents in the water so we can tell if the water's flowing in or flowing out in which direction and how fast. Some of the critical information are things like very high resolution temperature measurements of the water as well as the salinity, dissolved oxygen, and um, which gives a lot of information about where that water comes from. Is it coming from the outer ocean and coming in? Is it meltwater coming out? So this kind of consistency, direction, temperature of the water is one of the key kind of pieces of information we're returning about basically what's happening with the water as it comes in and out beneath the ice. Uh, we're also able to measure the thickness of the ice from below. So one of the issues you have with ice is that it can be hundreds to thousands of meters thick. So trying to measure that from space or from the surface can be quite difficult. So we're able to go under and, and, and physically measure how thick that ice is uh, as it goes into, as it protrudes into the ocean. Two questions came from that. How deep is the sea in, around the Antarctic? Is it much different from what is around Australia or what are we dealing with in terms of depth? It varies. So the areas we've been to in the last two years at the fronts uh, near uh, near ice shelves have been in, you know, 12, 13, 1400 meter kind of range anywhere, you know, so eight to eight to 1400 meters. There are definitely areas where it's deeper and definitely areas where it's shallower. Uh, you'll have much the same effect as you do around Australia, where you will have a continental shelf uh, in areas. So controlling the position of the, of the AUV, I'm assuming that you don't use GPS because you've got no signal. Are you just setting up a gyro and having it run off a gyro? And does that... Is that gyro impacted by the gravitational layout of, I mean, you're at the bottom of the Earth, so does the, the, the gyro impacted by the gravitational pull at any point in time or, or the things around it? Yeah, so it is it is a, a gyroscope. So we use two two inputs, basically. We have a we have a gyroscope to tell us which way we're pointing, and we have a, one of our sonars, as it pings the seafloor, can tell us how fast we're moving. So that gives us our speed. The gyro is really the special sauce, uh, and it the one we use is, is literally the most expensive piece of equipment on that vehicle. Uh, we use a very, very high grade fiber optic gyro to do this type of work it is affected by where you are on the where you are on the earth uh, as you get closer to the poles the, the 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 vector of rotation from the earth is diminished as you get away from the equator what we find is that it generally just takes the gyro a little bit longer to initialize 
to get its first reading, but it, once it has it, it still maintains it to a very high degree of accuracy, even to high latitude. So we've had the vehicle in the in the low 70s uh, degrees of latitude. Generally, it should work up until probably the mid 80s uh, before you'd really start to see some diminished effects. So when you're sending a, an AUV out on a task, you basically need to stay in the one position until it comes back. You can't afford to change the position or you can't communicate with it if you need to change your position for any reasons for weather or whatever. Best case scenario, yeah, we, we stay in wait, but that's not always possible. Okay. Uh, and as we, we saw a lot last year in West Antarctica, we had a lot of sea ice was moving around. So we do have some capability. So the vehicle will come back to where we were, but we tell it, basically we programmed the vehicle to stay underwater until we call it back. So if we had to move, we could leave and we could come back and then tell the vehicle. We do have, when the vehicle is near the ship within within a couple of kilometers, we can send it messages. So once it came back and it was just kind of loitering, uh, we could tell it to move somewhere else or come closer to the ship or worst case scenario, it may just have to linger for, for an extended period until we're able to come back to it. So the communication process with uh, students who are building submarines and ROVs and we've tried communicating on 40 hertz because it's the only thing that sort of works underwater. What frequencies do you use to work underwater to communicate? Primarily using acoustic communications. We operate, our primary modem is about 12 kilohertz and that what we've seen in the field is we've been able to communicate at most about just over four kilometers to the vehicle. And 12 kilohertz must be a science in itself working at that level. And this is one of the things where we've availed of some very good off-the-shelf products. The modems we use are, are commercially available modems that have a basically take take most of the guesswork out for us and do a very good job with some very high-level coding to give it uh, give us the robustness and, and range. In your bio, you talked about the Thwaites Glacial Region. Whereabouts is that? That's on the on the on the west side of Antarctica, uh, in an area called Pine Island Bay in the Admonson Sea. It's more or less south of uh, South America. I was going to say, when you're standing on the South Pole, how do you, which way is west? <laughs> it gets very. It does get quite confusing when you're looking at the maps, and it you know uh, it takes you a while sometimes to kind of orient yourself to realize that you know heading south is almost meaningless because everything is south and east and west sometimes don't quite uh, don't quite make sense either. So, and do, do maps make allowance for for um, east and west, or they just have north on them? A lot of it comes into your projections, and this is this is a big thing when you when you're operating near the poles. Is you do have to generate maps in a much different projection than you would uh, operating, you know, in, in in say in Australia or or North America. So it does take a while to get used to to looking at a map that kind of radiates out from the from the South Pole. So when you're programming your gyroscope to follow a path or to to do a set of things, what are the coordinates that you're actually putting in? Because you're so so close to the South Pole. Our navigation system operates in in latitude and longitude, but internally it it has the logic to to to, to reproject that into uh, what it needs to 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 calculate things like distance and orientation. But from the user standpoint, we're dealing with latitude and longitude, and internally it's handling the uh, the projections that's required to to do the calculations. So it's operating basically on I'm going this direction, then I'm turning that angle, I'm going that direction, and and not so worried about the longitude and latitude. But it plots that from what you give it. Yeah. So you. You don't transfer any data till it comes back to the mothership uh, when you upload the the AUV. Yep. So we we get a little bit of status information when it's nearby, but for the for the most part, until the vehicle is back to the ship, we uh, that's generally our first look at the uh, the data it's collected. So I gather you're a computer engineer. What's the definition of a computer engineer? I'm mechanical, but maybe for the listeners, you can explain what a computer engineer is all about. You could probably ask a thousand computer engineers and probably get a thousand different answers, but I guess the one I like to use is uh, it's the application of computer systems 
systems to solve problems. So in the same way mechanical engineers apply mechanics and physics to solve problems, we use hardware, software to solve whatever problems are presented. So it's it's some design and an analysis of, of computer systems. For me, primarily, it's been on the software side. So algorithm development and things like artificial intelligence and, and data management. But also, I mean, it, it does extend sometimes into specialty hardware if you're talking about serious size and power constraints of, of some smaller vehicles. So is computer engineering a subset of electrical or or its own branch? Historically, it generally started out as a specialization of electrical. So I know when I did my degree, it was just at the transition where computer engineering was starting to stand as its own discipline. Um, So from about the early 2000s, you'd see most universities now offering uh, computer engineering as its own discipline. The University of Tasmania and the AMC is a rather unique working environment, I would imagine. What are the kinds of subjects that people can study there uh, for students coming in what are the really interesting stuff that they get their, their hands around if they went to UTAS or to AMC? Primarily we deal with, with their engineering side so the, they have two primary engineering tracks uh, maritime engineering which is dealing with the equipment and the systems that uh, that are operated in and around the ocean and uh, and naval architecture which is kind of the classical concept of somebody who designs and builds uh, ships. With AMC the real kind of unique thing is its facilities so what, what it's really known for is it's, it's the access you have to these very large world-class test facilities, large tanks that can generate uh, waves and winds, tow tanks, which can very accurately drag structures through the ocean and model things like their their, their drag properties. We also have a world-class facility for cavitation research, which allows to take things like airfoils and or hydrofoils, I should say, and and propellers uh, and really get a kind of a microscopic view of, of how that interacts with the, with the water as it changes. Uh, so I think for AMC, it, with its engineering programs, the really unique thing is really the hands-on practical type uh, education you get there and our facility is part of that as well. So you have an interesting place where you have a you can do your education on paper, but at the same time, just down the just down the other side of campus, you'll have large uh, facilities and vehicles and tanks and models uh, that you also get to to work with. So I worked on that with AMC a long time ago on America's Cup Challenger with Ian Murray, and, and it was really quite intriguing the um, the outcomes they were getting from the, the tank testing and things. So if you were talking to a student, why would you advise a student to go to Unitas or AMC, what are the things that you think that would inspire them? I know you just spoke about the practical side of things, but are there other things that would in, you think they would be interested by? Certainly, I mean, like going to Antarctica would be an amazing opportunity. The two main aspects of Utah's I've had most experience with have been, you know, the the, the Maritime College, where I think if, if you're a student who's interested in engineering but not quite sure where you'd want to apply that, but you have an interest in the ocean and the maritime uh, world, it, it's a dream for somebody who's technically minded and also interested in, uh, in the ocean. The other institute we deal with is IMAS, which is the Institute for uh, Marine and Antarctic studies. So that's, again, if you're a student who, who is interested in, in the Antarctic, it's, you know, I mean, you have no better place in Australia to, to study that. So it, it's really, you know, you can do an engineering degree or a science degree anywhere. It's really where you want that focus to go for you. If it is maritime and ocean and Antarctic, yeah, there, there really is no better place to go. So what's the next thing on the agenda in terms of exploration? Will that AUV do other projects or will it wait now? The, the vehicle is is you know now a, a, a an available facility at the at the Maritime College so it's certainly open for uh, research work that happens at the university so we deal with a number of PhD students who are doing various 
projects on vehicle autonomy, robotics, path planning, uh, as well as students who deal with, you know, hydrodynamic aspects. We also get interest from commercial people. I mean, it is a very large, capable vehicle able to do survey work, not just in, in Antarctica, but anywhere in the ocean. So you, you, you do get people who are quite interested in using it as a, as a data collection tool for any wide aspects. I mean, you know, one example you could look at are all the various pipelines and, and cable links that are connecting things, places like Tasmania to the mainland. We have a lot of collaboration with the defense industry and the defense research in Australia. The Royal Australian Navy is, like most navies in the world, is migrating towards autonomous systems. It's much safer to employ a, a small robotic submarine to do things like search for, for unexploded mines in areas than sending in divers. So we're seeing some, a lot of collaboration there, as well as training. Kind of been ahead of the curve in operating these vehicles. So now we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of course development now of actually being able to come in and take training courses on operations of AUVs. Long term, we would likely see the vehicle going back to Antarctica in the next couple of years. These things obviously are a fair amount of planning and funding involved. So uh, you can kind of start the discussions now for deployments that might happen in two years' time. So you're working a lot with Australian industry, Australian defence industry? We try to foster collaborations with with some of the survey players uh, that do offshore survey in Australia. Defence research, we've always had a very good relationship with as long as with the Navy. But internationally as well, I mean, when you when you get a large vehicle like this, it's there's not that many out there. So as soon as you have access to that, people tend to start calling you. So we, you know, we 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 have partners around the world that have that have contacted us about potentially using our vehicle. So where is the vehicle made? The vehicle itself was manufactured in the west coast of Canada by a company called International Submarine Engineering. Um, so they came through a public tendering process uh, with uh, with the university, and we've had a very strong, long engagement relationship with them. They make vehicles, but they make them very customized to each project. So it was a very collaborative effort to, to specialize our vehicle exactly for what we were uh, what we were going to use uh, use it for. A couple of technical questions. We have a lot of students building submarines and ROVs and, and also building F1 cars. And the question always comes up, uh, the difference between um, hydrodynamics and aerodynamics. Have you got a, a perspective on that? <laughs> That's a loaded question. I appreciate that. I am. I am the generally the the, the software guy. Uh, I mean, I know there are a lot of a lot of parallels. I mean, I guess you can think of water as thick air in some ways, <laughs> but uh, I guess for in terms of engineering, the real difference comes into the pressures you're dealing with, and you know, just just trying to trying to keep the water outside becomes one of the biggest challenges you you you're constantly contending with. I apologise. That was a loaded question, but <laughs> I'm just trying to get someone to back up what I've been telling the students. So, so a question for you personally, what, if you were to describe why engineering, uh, why it's a career, why it's a, a cool thing to be involved in, what would the, the words that you would use to some student, young students I'm talking about here? For me personally, I think one of the under underrated things with engineering is the the level of creativity it actually has. So I think that's probably what gets lost sometimes with all the, the math and science around engineering. But for me, it's it's really, it's a very creative field and problem solving. So if you like problems and coming up with very clever solutions that really exercises many parts of your brain, I mean, for me, that's, that's, that's what engineering has always been. Uh, the draw for engineering for me has always been. So you'd recommend students take up engineering? Always. <laughs> Is there anything that you'd like to say that um, might be of interest to students about maybe the, the journey you've been on, or maybe you talk about the journey you've been on from, from school to where you are right now? I mean, I, I think I'm a, 
a, a bit of a unique case. I mean, that, that I work, you know, I work in the maritime engineering industry, but I'm not a maritime engineer. So I think uh, one of the things I do like to get across is that, you know, you, you can do, I was interested in computers and software, you know, might people might think it's quite limiting that you're just going to end up making databases and websites for the rest of your life. But, you know, here I am heading to Antarctica on, you know, <laughs> these large exploration missions. So I think you can kind of follow your interests and your passions in engineering, but that's, it's not always going to limit what you may end up doing. So I think you have to be willing to, to kind of go with what the world brings you. And, you know, you, you might have interest in one thing and interest in another thing that may not be connected. But, you know, if you if you follow what you want to do, you'll you generally end up in the right place. So when you're at school, did you want to be an engineer or when, when did that come to you in your life cycle? I was a bit of a slow starter. I went to uni right out of high school, but didn't know what I wanted to do. So I dropped out my first year and worked retail like everybody else. Went back and did a three-year college diploma, you know, a, a very technical three-year program in electronics. I enjoyed that, but it wasn't quite everything I wanted. I noticed that, you know, I, I kept seeing all these other guys were doing much more interesting work and I realized they were the engineers. So I was very lucky that the university I went to in Canada, Memorial University, had a program where you could upgrade a technical diploma into an engineering degree, saving yourself about a year and a half. So I ended up re-enrolling and, and completing my Bachelor of Engineering. So I, mean, I was a bit of a, I didn't know I wanted to be an engineer until much later, but that's okay too. Yeah, it's interesting. These days, kids, uh, the, the, the process of the transition to the world of work is a difficult one. And I think some of the things we struggle with is getting kids to have enough knowledge to know what, what the decision is right up front. A lot of them do go, go through that process of not understanding what they want to do and then just fall into it. And if the more we can improve that, the, the better it is. So. so last question, what's it like to live in Tasmania? It's fantastic. So, I mean, I mean coming from, a, I come from a small island off of Canada to move to a small island off of Australia. So in some ways I've picked uh, pretty much the place nearest to what I'm used to, but I enjoy it very much. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful country, very, uh, very good people. Uh, we've, the opportunities here have been fantastic. We very much enjoy living in Tasmania. It's, you know, it's, it's got very similar weather to home minus all the snow. So we've just removed winter from our, from our lives. I'm not much one for the heat, so I don't think I'd survive up in the top end for sure. So I think it, it suits me quite well for my lifestyle. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to chat to us. I, I think uh, there's a lots of good information there for students coming through and and if we could inspire a few of them to uh, go to UTAS and AMC and to take careers in undersea exploration, I think it'd be wonderful. Yes, indeed. Thanks very much for your time, Peter. Cheers. Thank you very much.